and Escapism, the podcast by two friends who love to talk about the movies. I'm Kendra Bean. And I'm Anton Uzarowski. Hey, hey girl. girl! Hey! <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Seems like we haven't done this in a while, actually. We had a bit of a break this time. We literally have not done it in three weeks. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Our... But, you know, that... Yeah. Our fa- That's okay. Our devoted fans are like gagging to hear what we have to say, I'm sure. <laughs> our, our five <laughs> devoted fans. <laughs> <laughs> that includes us too, probably. <laughs> Including us and Robbie and Tony. Okay, one devoted fan. Marissa, our one devoted fan. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Marissa. <laughs> Hi, Marissa. Um, yeah, no, I, well, we've been quite busy the past few weeks and then also just feeling really tired from work, so. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And also the weather has been so uncharacteristically glorious here in the UK. It's been amazing. Amazing. It's like true proper summer. Yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. I mean, I went swimming in the Hampstead Heath Ponds like 10 times oh in the last two weeks. 10 times? Yeah. Um, Anthony, were you cruising? No. (laughs) I mean, it was Pride Week, so you know. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, I was not cruising. I was swimming. I was staying active. Oh, that's good. I was staying active too. I went to the gym. I went to the gym like two times. Yay for Kendra. Yay. (laughs) You are an inspiration. I am doing so good in that regard, but yeah. What's your secret? (laughs) Talissa's secret. (laughs) Drag Race mentioned. Oh my god, yeah, Drag Race happened as well in the meantime. Drag Race happened. So I have to say, Kendra, thank you so much for introducing me to it, because that show is literally, like, so fabulous, and it's revolutionized my life. I love it so much. Drag Race is life. I am so obsessed with it. And the thing is that I'd never seen it before Easter. And then Robbie and I binge watched the, you know, nine seasons. We skipped season one because it wasn't on Netflix at the time. But we binged like nine seasons of it in a month. Like I was sitting there watching like five episodes a day over (laughs) Easter break. I was just, it was so good. And I I didn't think I would, I'd seen it on Netflix before. And I was just like, what is this? You know, then I sat down and watched it and said, my God, my life has changed. It was so good. I know. For, uh, same. Mm. I mean, for some reason, I thought I wouldn't enjoy it. And then you kept being like, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. And one day I finally just said, okay, I'll watch one episode. And then I just got hooked. It's really good. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's very empowering. And it's not like a reality show. Like, you know, you don't really see them like going home and like calling their mom or anything like that. It's really, mm. I don't know. I really, it really appealed to me. If if people out there are listening and you haven't seen it and you're kind of wondering like, oh, what is it? Like, so drag race also in America is like a race car thing. It's not that. Oh, okay. It's a mixture <laughs> of it's a mixture of um America's Next Top Model and Project Runway. So Project Runway is one of my favorite shows of all time. And but it's with drag queens and RuPaul obviously is the host. But it's like so it's so good because these people are so, a so entertaining. Mm. B they're really skilled at what they do, like really amazing at makeup. Um, they sometimes can like sew their own costumes and everything. They're just like so good at transforming. 
Um, and it's just so like, it's so much fun to watch and I just love it. And I'm obsessed with a few of the Queens who I want to meet and be <laughs> best friends with, but you know, I yeah. think you will. I mean, I didn't see why not. I mean, one day, I don't know. I'm only stalking them on Twitter right now. So. <laughs> but, but what I really love about it is that this, it's, it really gives voice to minority, you know, voices that we didn't have on mainstream TV before. And, yeah. I really love their backstories and some of them are really heartbreaking. You know, they talk about their families or, you know, growing up in a small town and having to sort of face up to all those issues and, you know, the struggles that they had as, as young kids. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's that really pers- on a personal level that really spoke to me and really, you know, I cried quite a few times. I know I've cried so many times watching it, especially like at the end, um, usually during the finale episodes, they have like the top four whoever's in the final um they have like words like messages from people oh, yeah. in their family who maybe they thought like wouldn't accept them for being gay or for being a drag queen um and just like these you know recorded messages from like grandmas and moms and stuff like that and i think as rupaul says rupaul's drag race <laughs> bringing families together and it's so true it's true though i feel like you know they always talk about drag being like a family yeah because a lot of these people like they were maybe kicked out of their houses or you know they didn't feel accepted in their home environment or the people around them and so when they moved to big city and and joined uh, the drag scene and then they, they found like a new family yeah and i think that's really kind of heartwarming yeah the sense of community is amazing and you know sometimes at the beginning when they first enter the workroom and they like recognize each other from having worked together or it's just like really cute mm-hmm. they're like oh my god girl i've seen you like you know in new york city or wherever so it's like they're really tribal and territorial as well like if you're from new york or from chicago or whatever yeah and it's amazing how much this show has like launched people's careers i mean yeah. it's really i think elevated drag to like this completely mainstream sort of thing mm. like all, a lot of the queens, like the top queens from the shows are now like touring around the world and doing live performances and things. And I just think it's so great. I really, I really want to go see some of them. And they have like a whole convention in the States as well and in the UK. Yeah. And people go to it. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> well, I was actually... So who's your favorite queen? Well, in this latest season, season 10, um, I was Team Aquaria and she won. Oh, Sorry, yes. spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, re- I wanted her to. I mean, I really admired most of them. They were great. I loved... Um, God, what's her name? The one who was in this... Cameron Michaels. Yeah, I did like Cameron Michaels a lot. But um, no, it's Asia O'Hara. I loved Asia O'Hara. Yeah, me too. She was great. It's just a shame that it didn't really work in the end. With the butterflies, mm-hmm. the whole thing kind of didn't work. But... She tried. She tried. I was glad Aqu- yeah. Aquaria won, to be honest. How about you? Who did you want to win? Well, I still maintain that Ms. Cracker was robbed and should have been in the top four, for sure. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of had a feeling that Aquaria would win, just because she's, like, first of all, she's really young, but, like, her looks are amazing. She's yeah. so talented. But also because she's the drag daughter of Sharon Needles, who was a really big contestant from season four. Uh, spoiler she she won season four um and so it's like i think that kind of connection you know 
Um, and the Melania yeah, Trump impersonation was amazing. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> but my favorite queen of all the queens of all the seasons is one Katya Zamalochikova. <laughs> wow, <laughs> well amazing. pronounced. She's so, she's so funny. I just love her. She's in season uh, seven. Yes. Yeah. Okay. She's just the um, bisexual Russian hooker. <laughs> <laughs> She's so funny. Her and Trixie Mattel. Oh yeah. And Sharon from season four. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, Drag Race. Go watch it. It's so good. This was not a topic of our of our episode, but you know. But it should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should something to think about in the future. <laughs> yes. Yes. We could make a no, but we are... podcast. <laughs> but we are talking about queens today. Yes, we're talking about, well, specifically we're talking about sort of Hollywood and the history of gay Hollywood and LGBTQ presence in Hollywood and in the movies. Um, because it is, well, it was Pride Month. Um, June was Pride Month in America, but it was we had Pride here in London last weekend, which was amazing. Yeah. So it's still, and anyway, I mean, you don't have an, you don't have to have an excuse to talk about it anyway, but. <laughs> True. Well, we were going to do an interview with Michelle Morgan about her Marilyn book, but um, that got postponed. So this is the perfect opportunity to talk about something that's really like prescient right now. Yes. Um, yeah. So it'd be really good. And something that's Exciting. really, really interesting. And, you know, I actually just watched this documentary, which I've had seen before, but I just rewatched it to refresh my memory, called Celluloid Closet, which I'm sure a lot of you guys know, and Kendra, you know it as well. Yeah, it was yeah it's really good. Really interesting, and like, but it was made in the late 90s, and it's really encouraging to see how much it's changed since then, even, because we've had all those mm, amazing yeah. films, like, you know, starting with Broadway Mountain, but then Carol as well, and Call Me By Your Name. So mm-hmm. those really mainstream, beautiful films that, you know, didn't, that really elevated the narrative beyond what, what what was happening in the 90s. And they were already saying that it's changed when they were making the documentary 25 years ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see that it, it is progressing in the right direction. Even, yeah. though, even though the representation still isn't anywhere near as, you know, as equal as it should be, but it is definitely heading in the right direction. I think it's really interesting in that documentary how they talk about like the way people, the way um, LGBT people were presented in uh, older films, um, usually in a very stereotypical kind of way, but there yeah. were kind of like signs that people threw out where you could like <laughs> identify the queer characters based on like how they dressed or, or the type of like person that they were. Um, I didn't watch cellular closet again for this but i did watch half of a documentary on youtube called something it was something like um call me lavender or something like that and i got a bit annoyed because it focused so much on the road movies between bing crosby and bob hope and how gay they really were um i mean how gay the movies were not not actually bob hope and bing crosby but um yeah so they were talking about how like a lot of times like you can identify Um, the gay characters in the film because they played like these upper class like rich dandies 
um, like bachelors who are always kind of like, you know, with, with the one hand on the shoulder of the leading man and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it was interesting. Yeah, it's, it is very annoying. And, you know, those, they call them sissies. And like in the 30s, they had those like yeah. overtly feminine guys like prancing about. And while, you know, that certainly is part of the community. I mean, there are men like that. That's certainly not the only type of gay people there are. So it was very yeah. sort of reductive. Um, yeah. But I think what was very... And also... Oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. I think what was really interesting was that, you know, what we had to do, and I, I really identify with that because, you know, I mentioned in the previous episode that, you know, when I grew up, when I grew up in, in Poland and... Um, I didn't really, I wasn't aware of gay culture really, or, you know, mm-hmm. I, it was, yeah. so I feel like in a way I grew up in, in the fifties, even though I didn't, but you know, it was so conservative that I really had to find role models and I had to really find people to identify with. Um, and because, you know, there were no gay characters in films that I watched, I had to substitute with people who were, you know, who weren't gay, but I sort of imagined them to be gay or, or found people that were the most alike I was, you know, the most similar to mm-hmm. me. And that was really interesting in that documentary as well. They were talking about, you know, how gay men sort of idealized you know, certain female characters and sort of identify with them, even though obviously they weren't gay, but the mm-hmm. way they were written and the way they were performed really spoke to them so that was really interesting but i think we can talk a bit more about this later as well well were there certain films that you watched when you were growing up um that you considered like coming out films and that you felt like you really like a film that said like oh my gosh you know that's me or i really connect with that or this like really speaks to me on this like deeper level or can you think of any specific titles um well, I think there were like different categories of sort of enlightenment for me. I mean, there were films in which I know, like saw glimpses of just gay life or gay activities mm-hmm. or, you know, gay sex, which you can see in certain films. I remember when I saw um, Midnight Cowboy, I must have been about, I don't know, 12 or something. Oh, yeah. And I had no, you know, obviously starting, you know, going into it, I had no idea that there would be such an explicit, well, it wasn't really that explicit, but to me it was a very explicit sort of, gay scene when and you know i don't remember mm-hmm. in the cinema where the sort of young rent boy basically goes down on john void in the cinema <laughs> yeah and to me that was like i was just <laughs> in shock because obviously i had no idea about any of this i I had those feelings but i had no idea you know how to express them and i had no idea that people actually expressed them and how they did it so when i saw it in the mainstream film i just remember sort of watching it with my mom and she got very sort of embarrassed and kind of you know there was this dead silence in the air because she didn't know what to say but I remember just inside thinking oh my god people actually do these things and you know um so that was there were moments like that but also I just loved all those sort of larger than life film stars that later I found out they were actually you know bona fide gay icons so it wasn't just me but I mm-hmm. I loved Marilyn Monroe I loved Elizabeth Taylor I loved Betty Davis and Judy Garland and Dietrich and Garbo I had those phases when I was a child that I sort of went through and you know I would be obsessed with one of them for like six months and then sort of discover another one and it would just that's how my childhood like that's how I sort of lived through my childhood was through them they really helped me through and then you know I discovered later that I wasn't the only one but they did it for 
millions of others. So it's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. Oh, it, I think it's really cool that there are that um, like portrayals, positive portrayals, especially of gay couples in film are becoming more and more mainstream these days, um, because I think like Brokeback Mountain was like the first like really sort of public, like gay relationship on film, like mainstream Oscar nominated kind of thing. Um, the- but to me, that film, that film was quite, I mean, it was quite tragic. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like they got to go ride off into the sunset <laughs> together or anything like that. So I think, you know, and I, well, I was going to say call me by your name, but again, that one was like, they, spoiler alert, didn't end up together, yeah, you know, true, actually. But- out of the big three that I mentioned before, I think Carol is the only one that has a, a hopeful yes, ending. Yes. And it's interesting because that's a, well, it's a lesbian yeah. romance. Yeah. So. And there's another film which I watched recently. Um, actually, I spotted it on Mariah from uh, the TCM Mariah Gates. She was recommending it. It's oh, what was it called? Yeah. It was something like oh god, it's not helpful. I don't remember its title. It was like a very iconic lesbian film made in the 80s. Um, oh. Something like was it Wild Night or Wild Desert or something? I'm gonna check it out in a second. But it was really interesting. Okay. There was. A film made in the eighties, and it also had a happy ending. It was a lesbian love story. Obvi- yeah. Obviously, it wasn't as mainstream. It wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards or anything, but it was a very significant film. But um, there's quite a lot of films that are sort of lesser known that you can definitely discover that going quite far back that depict homosexuality, but they're just not very well known. Certainly not, you know, mainstream. One of my favorites is um, Maurice, mm, the oh, Merchant yeah. Ivory film with with um, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, I think yeah. that's such a oh, that's a that's a good one, it's and that kind of has a, a bit of a happy ending for for at least the main character. So it does, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Aww. Yeah, I like that. I think it's a beautiful film. Yeah, actually, I got to write a review of, of it a few months ago because they reissued it. There's this is a very yeah. Uh, um, sort of digitally remastered version so yeah it's a beautiful film everyone go watch maurice Definitely. it's a classic it's so good but speaking of happy endings we also wanted to talk about one particular actor um a gay actor that had a very sad story um, this yeah it's, it's i'm gonna just i'm gonna take it down a notch i'm going to take it down to the the, the sad bits here yeah. and then the rest of the podcast is going to go back uphill so <laughs> this is the bit where um i get to combine two of my favorite topics which are classic film and true crime so i'm going to talk about ramon navarro um the silent film star so basically i i'm addicted to true crime podcasts like my favorite murder and um, not true crime garage, but um, last podcast on the left. I listen to those all the time and I read like a lot of true crime books. So I'm like one of those women who like, I always have, you know, investigation discovery on in the background while I'm folding laundry and things like that, <laughs> which I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with murder, but not like <laughs> in a weird way. And I know it sounds like completely weird, but it turns out there are dozens of us at least. I mean, now there's all these articles coming out about how women are like addicted to true crime shows and oh. I am one of those people. So yeah. Why is it just Dateline women? is my favorite. I'm not really sure. I mean a lot of these articles <laughs> say like 
Well, women are really interested in these because we often feel like there's like a sense of danger out there. Like, you know, if you're alone and, um, you know, like straight, there's always like this, this, the sense of danger if you're alone and like you see like a random guy walk by how a lot of times you get like, oh, you know, he could like attack me or something like that. Because there are so many stories of people like, you know, getting raped or assaulted or um, murdered. It's, you know, women are usually by and large the target of these crimes. Mm. So I don't know why it's just like one of those things where you just want to know what happens. And I think on the same level, um, I think a lot of people are just interested in like the psychology of like how could someone do something like that you know i know i'm really interested in like how does someone you know what what happens to some to a person to get them to become like a serial killer or something like how do you how who are you and how do you even get to that why why would you even do that you know it's like it's really weird but um yeah um, and also there's this thing for me personally, um, which is a, a psychological term called flooding because I, um, so I have OCD, but like a specific type of OCD called pure O, um, which is based around like, it's intrusive thoughts, but they're usually based around like uh, certain like categories and themes. And when I was younger, um, one of the big things for me was like violence. Like I was afraid that I was going to hurt somebody. Or, you know, like, like, well, what if I stabbed someone, you know, not that I would do it. I was very just like scared of doing it. But I kept like having these thoughts of like, oh, what if this happens? What if I'm this horrible person? And I used to not be able to watch like horror films or anything like that because it would make me really uncomfortable and really scared. But then so it was kind of like I now watch so many of those shows and so many of those films that it's kind of like it doesn't give me anxiety anymore because I've like... <laughs> it's like overexposure to things yeah. if that makes sense i know it's, it's a bit probably too tmi for people but <laughs> anyway that's a bit about me but i'm going to talk about ramon navarro um first of all because he had an interesting story and a really kind of like sad end but he was a really gorgeous person and seemed really nice and i like some of his films that i've seen so i'm just gonna talk a bit about him fire away um, i'm firing away right now <laughs> Ramon, um, so he was a he was and a don't big silent fuck star. Fuck it up. <laughs> I'm not gonna fuck it up. I wrote it down. I made notes. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Sashaying. Um, so <laughs> Ramon was born Jose Ramon Gil Samaniego in Durango, Mexico, on February sixth, eighteen ninety nine, and he was one of thirteen children. Huge, wow. prominent family in Mexico. Uh, but his family moved to L.A. in 1913 to escape the dangers of the Mexican Revolution. And Ramon started in the film business in 1917, where he was playing bit parts. And he also had a really good singing voice. To, so to kind of supplement his income, he worked as a, a singing waiter. Apparently that was a thing back in the 19 Wow. I'd, love, I'd yeah. love for them to bring it back. I know, exactly. <laughs> could come and like serenade you by your table and play those little violin and everything it was so good hello anyway, can i take la, your la. order <laughs> la, la. <laughs> anyways um so ramon became friends with the irish producer director and actor rex ingram 
who encouraged him to change his last name to Navarro because Samaniego was kind of like, that's not a good stage name. Navarro is much easier to say. It like rolls off the tongue. It's, it looks good on paper. I don't know. But um, so Ramon made his first success as the dashing romantic lead in the 1923 film Scaramouche, directed by Ingram and starring Ingram's wife, Alice Terry. And Alice Terry was... Ramon's leading lady in films a number of times. He worked with a lot of the same people on several films. Um, he was promoted as another, quote, Latin lover, unquote, as a rival to Rudolph Valentino. And it's interesting because Rudolph Valentino was actually Italian, but, you know, who cares? Yeah. It's Hollywood. But, you know, <laughs> if you looked vaguely ethnic, you were ethnic. Latin <laughs> yeah. or something. I don't know. Um, so when Valentino died of a perforated ulcer in 1926, Ramon assumed the title of Hollywood's premier Latin lover. He was a huge star for MGM in the 1920s and acted with leading ladies including Joan Crawford, Barbara Lamar, Norma Shearer, Renee Adderay, Anita Page, Dorothy Jordan, Madge Evans, Greta Garbo, Myrna Loy, and others. Um, his biggest film was probably Ben-Hur in 1925, which was directed by Fred Niblo. And then I wrote and underlined Eye Candy Extraordinaire, because that's <laughs> what he was in that film. I mean, he had these, like, shirtless. Um, I was reading, I was just, you know, making some notes on him before we recorded this. And he worked out with a really famous, like, personal trainer in Hollywood at the time. And then this lady wrote a book and said that he liked to sleep in a coffin. And I was like, oh, the Hollywood rumor mill. Wow. Come on. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. But it is, so Ramon, um, he was a very, he was very beautiful. He had this extraordinary dark, you know, handsome looks. Um, yeah. He always played the straight romantic character in the film, which was kind of ironic because in real life, Ramon was gay. Um, and... It's interesting also because he was uh, one of the few silent film stars to um, successfully transition to sound, um, despite having like a really thick Spanish accent. Uh, so he, he made it that way. But um, basically, he's not as well known today as Valentino was. Um, but if people do know Ramon today, it's more than likely because he died a tragic death um, Ramon, contrary to his smoldering heterosexual on-screen image, which I would argue is not always very smolderingly heterosexual, like I showed <laughs> you that clip from a film on YouTube, which I don't remember the title of it, but that it's was probably the gayest hilarious. thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it was, was. Super gay. It yeah. was as gay as Christmas. <laughs> so gay as the day is long. <laughs> yeah. Like even in Ben-Hur, so, Ben there are, like, moments where, like, so intensely, like, heterosexual, um, you know, what was I going to say? Um, yeah. Very, homoerotic. That's the one, yes. It's, it's so gay. Yeah. There, there's a lot <laughs> like of, in like... in a lot of those old films, though, there's always bits where you're just like, that's the gayest thing. Yeah. Smoldering, like, gazes and... <laughs> In the clip that I showed Anthony, which you can find on YouTube, it's titled something like Ramon Navarro takes a bath and he's in this scene with like, it's all men in the scene. He's, he plays a lead character who's talking with this like valet butler manservant sort of person about how he's going to go off and marry <laughs> someone's daughter. And the, the manservant is obviously like the queer character in the film. He's very like, 
like what is what they would have called like they would have said like fairy back then he's the sissy character yeah he's the sissy for sure and he would be like he's like ooh, yes ramon you do this and basically at (laughs) one point ramon's in the bath like splashing around like teehee and then he turns around and he's like are you wearing my underwear (laughs) the guy's like yes (laughs) <laughs> yes <laughs> I was like take it off and I'm like oh yes <laughs> oh my god oh dear well that's the sort of thing you got in, in old Hollywood um, pre-code <laughs> pre-code exactly but Ramon um, contrary to his heterosexual on-screen image was actually gay like we mentioned um, and throughout his adulthood he had difficulty reconciling his homosexuality with his Catholic faith so he grew up staunchly Catholic from Mexico um, and had a lot of trouble kind of navigating those two things at the same time. And so a lot of people suspect that that's, that was the root cause of his alcoholism, which plagued him like throughout his adult life. Um, unlike other gay stars like Rock Hudson, though, Ramon refused to enter into a lavender marriage to appease the studio. Um, Louis B. Mayer and the executives at NGM actually asked him to marry a woman uh, just for publicity's sake. And he said no. He w- he lived as a perpetual bachelor. <laughs> um, he was let go of MGM in 1935 and then went on to work sporadically in film and TV over the next about um, 30 years. And I actually discovered Ramon Navarro through... My interest in Vivian Lee because um, Vivian Lee was a total fangirl and one of the people she was a big fan of was Ramon when she was growing up when she's a teenager um, he was in a film called The Pagan mm. in the late 1920s and she was like obsessed with him as you would be if you see clips like on YouTube he's I mean he's amazing looking um, so she basically had pictures of him in her locker if they had lockers at Catholic school in like 1920 <laughs> you know which they didn't but uh, basically um yeah, Ramon, he was this really interesting figure, not quite as big as Valentino, but in his time, he was a huge star. Um, and unfortunately, he met this really sort of tragic end. And I don't want to botch this or, or give um, false details about it. So I just would like to read um, an article from the LA Times, um, which is called A Star Is Killed, Hollywood's Deadly Secret. So the thing about Ramon is that um, he... Basically, he was very secretive about being gay, even in the business. A lot of people probably didn't know. He only let his close friends and obviously like the film executives knew what was going on. But the public didn't know. Um, It was a closely guarded secret. But because of this tragic thing that happened to him, um, that's like how everyone came to know that he was actually gay. So it's Mm. kind of like this really sad thing but um this article is by um john reshi who's a a novelist um and he's reviewing andre sora's really great book called ramon navarro beyond paradise which i would really recommend you guys reading but so i just want to read you some of the details um it says on the evening of october 30th 1968 ramon navarro once one of Hollywood's greatest romantic idols, now 68 and frail, looking like a Spanish grandee in a red and blue robe, opened the door of his Laurel Canyon home and, with all the graciousness of his aristocratic lineage, greeted his guests, a burly young man of 22 and a slender one of 17, his murderers. The burly young man had obtained Navarro's telephone number from a previous guest in order to solicit an invitation for himself and his younger brother. 
Both understood why they would be invited. Both had hustled before. Navarro welcomed such young men who considered him, quote, an easy touch, a nice old guy. Only those closest to him knew his guarded secret, that he was homosexual. He was not the only one in Hollywood who kept such a secret. It was necessary self-protection. That and his rigid Catholicism created a chafing inner conflict. Easy camaraderie developed among the three. Navarro read the older brother's palm and saw a bright future. At the piano, Navarro taught him a song he had composed. The younger brother contributed his own tune. The camaraderie the liquor shared with the older brother allowed Navarro to feel that he was not buying companionship. It was a kind of companionship he often bought, frequently passing out, drunk, abdicating any, any sexual connection. He was a lonely man, his contemporaries, Garbo, Fairbanks, Negri, dead or in seclusion. Perhaps remembering their name, Navarro showed the brothers a photograph of himself as a handsome, muscular young man wearing a toga in the title role of Ben-Hur. Doesn't look like you, the younger brother said. Whether coerced by the older brother or to indicate that he was still a power in Hollywood, Navarro called the film publicist and told him, sounding agitated, that he wanted to introduce a young man who had star quality. So Ramon was basically, um, because he was attracted to one of the brothers that came to his house, he wanted to kind of like offer him a chance to get into the film business. Dear. Um, and the, uh, yeah. It's um, a very sweet says, bird of youth, isn't it? It's sweet. Oh, God. Um, liquor clouded the sequence of events into a blurred sequence of violence. In the bedroom, with Navarro and possibly after a sexual interlude, both were naked at one point. The burly young man, now dressed, demanded the $5,000 rumored to be hidden in the house. There was no such amount, Navarro insisted truthfully. He never kept large sums at home. The younger brother, who had been on the telephone mollifying a girl he had beaten up in Chicago, joined them, adding his own demands for the money. Navarro's pleading denials aroused jostling, shaking, rough shoving that escalated into violent pummeling. Bleeding and frail, bleeding, the frail naked man fell. The brothers yanked him up to strike him down again. One of the brothers danced, twirling a cane like a baton and wearing a glove he had found in a closet, which is very um, clockwork orange, if you think about it. Mm. To prevent Navarro from slipping into unconsciousness, they dragged him into the bathroom, slapping him alert with cold water. Navarro staggered back into the bedroom. Hail Mary, full of grace, he sobbed, collapsing on his knees. Taking turns, the two aimed the cane at his genitals and his head. They bound him with an electric cord and struck again and again. The younger brother scratched the dying man's face. They tossed the mangled body onto the bed, and Navarro died choking on his own blood. The two killers ransacked the house, dumping on the floor photographs of Navarro as a young star, as if discarding even his past. To suggest that a woman had perpetrated the crime in vengeful violence and scratched the dead man's face, they wrote on a mirror words that revealed buried motives. Us girls are better than faggots. Those events are reconstructed from information in Beyond Paradise, The Life of Ramon Navarro by Andre Soares. Um, at the trial of the two brothers, um, uh, the, the author says it wasn't rare for violence against non-prominent homosexuals to go unreported. A declaration by an assailant that his victim had made a pass often guaranteed acquittal. The defense referred to Navarro as, quote, an old queer, unquote. 
the brother's mother testified that her younger son had written, he deserved to be killed, he was nothing but an old faggot. The trial exposed to the drab lives of the brothers, who, like Navarro, came from a repressive Catholic background. Raised in poverty, they were soon on their own, working at menial jobs, stealing and hustling. <coughs> Squads of other such young men shared that background, fleeing to big cities with nothing but their youth to rely on, exploited and exploiting, leading a life made desperate by their knowledge of the brevity of their existence, the brevity of their youth. They are a group not unworthy of compassion, but any compassion the brothers' dingy existence might have aroused before the crime was obliviated by the savagery of the attack. Twenty-two deadly blows. Unrepentant, each blamed the other, the younger saying that he was on the telephone when the deadly violence occurred, the other testifying that he had passed out and woken up to discover it. They changed their stories, shifting the motive from robbery to the claim that Navarro had made unwelcome advances. Guilty of first-degree murder, both were sentenced to life in prison. The judge recommended that they never be released, but they were, perhaps because of homophobic, homophobic attitudes toward Navarro. The younger killer was out in six years, the older in nine. Both committed more crimes, including separately rape. Now old themselves, they remain in prison for crimes unconnected to Navarro's murder. Um, the author goes on to talk about how um, basically, uh, Navarro is no more today for this violent thing that happened to him than anything that he accomplished during his life. And it's really sad. But what I want to mention is that this is sort of perpetrated again, um, in Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. Um, mm. so there was a big rumor that went around, um, before Andre Soar's book came out that, had involved like a lead or letter silver dildo in the shape of Rudolph Valentino's penis. That's a <laughs> Kenneth oh Anger, God. something he made up. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, I think there's there are so many rumors about old Hollywood people um, perpetuated by books like Hollywood Babylon. And um, there's a podcast that I listen to sometimes as well called You Must Remember This. Um, which is an old Hollywood storytelling podcast, um, and Karina Longworth, the host, um, she's currently doing a new season where she's going behind uh, all the stories in Hollywood Babylon and trying to figure out what's true and what's not. So um, I'm guessing she will probably be covering Ramon Navarro's death um, at some point. So it'll be interesting to listen to what she finds about that. Another interesting thing about this article that I just read is that the author doesn't mention the killer's names, which I think is really... Um, great in a way because you know we don't want to give them too much attention and, yeah. and a lot of yeah a lot of news stories about violent crimes tend to kind of focus more on the perpetrators than the victims um, but the last the last paragraph of the story says that um, some stars die at the right time to perpetuate their legends James Dean is forever the rebel Marilyn Monroe the quintessential movie star Marlena Dietrich eventually chose seclusion rather than compromise the legend, her, the legend of her ageless beauty. Navarro's legend is undeniably tainted by the monstrous end to his life. Still, the name itself, Ra Ramon Navarro, evokes the magic of the grand silent film romantics, thus securing his place amongst the greatest stars of all time. Beyond that, the repressive pressures that made possible the atrocity persist today, keeping famous actors closeted, even homophobic. That gives to the life and death of Navarro an enduring, tragic, and admonitory relevance. 
think that's really interesting. Poor mm. Ramon. Yeah, it's just it's really, so sad. really sad. Ugh. But it's I so think, sad. As you said, it's so indicative of of the attitudes and I don't know, it it's just really sad. I mean, watching this documentary today, the celluloid closet, it was just so sad to see how many lives were sort of unfulfilled and tragically sort of, you know, mm-hmm. reduced. How many careers were sort of crashed and how many people lived in fear all the time of being out it which you know it's just to think about it is really really horrible i feel like it sort of happens in hollywood today as well i mean there are a lot of rumors of people like tom cruise and john travolta i think they're the two really big ones um yeah but because they're scientologists um scientology is kind of notorious for covering up uh people's homosexuality and for specifically going after and squashing any rumors of the in the press of of these people possibly being gay and like i don't know john travolta or tom cruise in person but it would not surprise me <laughs> if they were gay no I you mean, know obviously yeah and it's just really sad that they can't that maybe because they're such big stars and they feel like if they come out then they their star quality will be diminished and their careers will be over. I mean, they come from that time. They come from that generation when that was still such a big deal. I mean, now maybe the younger generation of actors is a bit different, but Mm -hmm. in those days, I mean, they're, I don't know how old Tom Cruise is, but they're certainly in their fifties now, aren't they? At least. Yeah. Or John Travolta might be in his sixties. So in that, for that generation, it was definitely very difficult it was you know impossible to come out in those days if you were a leading man which they both were sort of romantic leading men who relied on sort of the female following it was impossible to come out so yeah and it's the same thing with like um rock hudson when he died of aids in Mm. the 80s and people because his image in hollywood has had been that of like the straight leading man usually opposite doris day but like this very good looking person that women loved him yeah. And so they were really shocked to find out that he was gay. And the same with Ramon, I'm sure, when he died. Um, and it's just sad that they couldn't be themselves because there was like pressure from the studio to conform to a certain image, um, to not let their... Uh, if, if they went to like a gay bar or something, to not let that be known. And if it, it was found out by the cops in a raid or something, then... It would be covered up by lawyers or whoever yeah. at the studio. But it's it's sad that um while they were they were able to live their lives to some extent in that secluded community of Hollywood under the studio system, um because they weren't able to like come out publicly or didn't want to do that for fear of recrimination, that when they died, it's sort of like that image that they had carried with them the entire time of this you know, this image of someone that they actually weren't was something that people were, like, disappointed in when it was revealed who they really were. And people were like, oh, my God, well... And now that's all people talk about, you know, like, oh, Rock Hudson was gay, you know? Yeah. But I think, I mean, in a way, they maybe became more famous or more iconic because of that, I think. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Certainly, Rock Hudson, I don't think he would have been remembered as well as he is today if it wasn't for the fact that he you know, it was revealed that he was gay. I think it gives another layer to to the legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we have to mention someone who just passed away a couple of days ago. Yeah. Tab Hunter, who was another Tab. 
Oh, it was. But I love because obviously I I know that many of you might have seen the Netflix documentary Tab Hunter Confidential, in which so he fi- finally comes out after all those years that he sort of denied it or didn't want to talk about it. He was finally convinced, I think, by his partner and producer. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, which I'm very embarrassed. I think was it. Alan Glaser. Alan, I think. Alan Glazer. Oh, yes. I'm thinking about someone else, yeah. So Alan con- must have convinced him because he was really very encouraging about, you know, he really sort of revered his Tab's career and he like always was, you know, encouraging him, you should own up to the fact that you were a big star and you should really, you know, go out there and talk about yourself. And I think he actually produced this documentary as well. And in it, it was made a few years ago, so... Um, Tab was already in his probably in his early 80s and he finally sort of acknowledged the fact that he was gay that he lived in a closet in the 50s and also talked about his relationship with Anthony Perkins another iconic yeah. Hollywood actor so I think yeah. it's a really interesting documentary to watch Tab just like so I, I've never actually seen a Tab Hunter film but I have seen that documentary twice and I remember there was actually a, a biography or maybe not bio, an autobiography that came out um about 10 years ago, I think was also called Tab Hunter Confidential. But in that book, it, he revealed for the first time that he was gay. Yeah. And then this documentary came out. So for people who didn't read the book, which I didn't, but I remember seeing it at the bookstore, um, the documentary kind of would be the first time that people heard him speak about it. Yeah, it was very touching. And also... He's, he seems so nice. Like he seemed just like a really lovely person, a genuinely nice guy. But what I found really interesting was... Yeah, he was. He was gorgeous. He was really cute. He was so gorgeous. Oh, my God. (laughs) But what I really (laughs) found interesting about it was that, you know, we don't really get to hear that many accounts of people from the 1950s talking about homosexuality. And what I found Mm -hmm. quite sad was that, you know, not only were they sort of actively encouraged to stay in the closet and sort of... um, you know keep it very secret but also and to actually get actually get married to women yeah but also i feel like their own attitudes were so un- they were so uncomfortable with it, and so many times they were like sort of fighting against it or trying so hard to sort of get rid of that side of mm-hmm. themselves and like convince themselves that maybe i'm straight like even tab had that remember when he talks mm-hmm. about this french actress that he almost married and and obviously anthony perkins went on to to marry and have children so they really and I again I can understand it because you know growing up Catholic I in my childhood I had so many thoughts of like oh maybe I can do something about it. maybe I can somehow change and it's so so mm. sad that people are forced to deny their identity or like feel ashamed of their identity or their sexuality mm-hmm. um so yeah that's that's what really struck me about this documentary I think younger gay people especially you know living in london or in those sort of more gay friendly places in the world Mm -hmm. they probably find quite hard to understand how difficult it is when you are hiding from everyone from your friends from your family from from your you know employers and and for those movie stars you know it wasn't just the people around them it was the whole world they had to project a certain image and they had to sell it and it was you know i just can't even imagine that the sort of um strain and the sort of pressure they felt every single day of their life and the fear of getting of being discovered of being outed and it would ruin their careers and 
Uh, it's just really dramatic and horrible to think about it. I mean, Hollywood, I think, is such a horrible business anyway. It's just like the film business is so cutthroat. Yeah. Um, you always have to... I mean, there's always that pressure for anyone who becomes famous to stay on top of their game. And it must be so much pressure even in that respect. But to have that extra layer of living like a double life yeah. must just be... So, and he talked about it, didn't... Uh, it was after he... He left, it was Warner Brothers was the studio he was with, wasn't it? Yeah. And he left Warner Brothers and then like worked in like dinner theater, you know, because he couldn't get film roles at other studios. And he said he was so stressed out that he had a heart attack. Yeah. And he wasn't even that old. He was probably like 40, you know? So it's really, it's really sad. But I'm so glad for Tab that he was, you know, he eventually was able to have a happy life have a happy life and live authentically um and be happy with himself and his horses yeah i know that was really heartwarming to see that because obviously so so many of his contemporaries weren't as lucky i mean thinking of someone like montgomery clift who was another (sighs) super talented super beautiful actor and he Mm -hmm. died at at 40 i think 45 of a heart attack as well so Mm -hmm. And people like Rock Hudson, who was never able to sort of come out or, or be himself and so sort he of had to die carrying his secret and like just worrying about people finding out and, and Anthony mm-hmm. Perkins as well. I mean he, he also died of AIDS. So I find Anthony Perkins to be like a really sad person, I think. I mean it seems from that documentary and from what yeah. Tab was saying, it's it sounds like he was very conflicted and very uncomfortable very conflicted, with himself. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. was obviously really talented, and he was—he really wanted to, to succeed as an actor first. And I think he probably felt rightly so that if his sexuality came out in any way, it would hinder his career. So I think mm. that's probably what happened. But yeah, so many Montgomery sad stories. Clifford, oh my god, yeah. But I—I I wanted to ask you something, Anthony. Um, so there are rumors about like me? everyone in old hollywood me, <laughs> me and me um there are rumors about like everyone in old hollywood and i feel like i i just kind of assume like that everyone's gay anyway you know <laughs> so it's like well who wasn't you know um but i'm thinking of um you remember that book that came out recently by scotty bowers about that like gas station in hollywood and like this pimp in hollywood that like arranged all of these like illicit liaisons with like you know and it's just like he kind of went through the entire roster of hollywood players and said like lesbian gay bi i could tell he was bi blah 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 and it's like what the fuck (laughs) like i i just feel like i don't know I, i mean i think it's it's so easy for people to pin things on dead people but at the same time i think it's if you're if you're writing about someone who is no longer alive and maybe someone who was actually gay, it must be really difficult to find those stories to authenticate that, you know, and to to find out whether it's true or not, just because those things weren't really like talked about. They certainly weren't written down, you know, yeah. or it wasn't like it was like a I wouldn't I don't want to say like an underground kind of thing, but kind of an underground kind of thing, you know? So people 
yeah, it wasn't like a these known things. So well, I, I think it's I just, just sad because it it just shows that in our culture, even today, sort of being gay or being bisexual or being a lesbian or whatever is still considered like a scandalous detail. So you know that's what sells is people want to read things that they consider to be sort of dirty or or con- controversial and that would you know reading about i know carrie grant or or i don't know who even spencer tracy i read somewhere clark gable like you know reading about them having sex with a man is just gonna but sell the thing is that i you know i wouldn't be surprised like if people did like maybe perform favors to get further in the business. I think that happens all the time. Um, I was having a, a conversation with someone recently about Laurence Olivier, who is, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I think he was gay. Or was he bi? Mm-hmm. Or was he straight? Or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Girl. Personally, I think he was probably bi. Um, I definitely think he probably I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone who's writing a new book about him and Vivian Lee, And... He said, like, no, you know, I really don't think that he was gay. And I was like, no, I don't think he was gay as in, like, he was using Vivian Lee or the other women in his life as, like, beards, you know? I think he did have, like, genuine feelings for people. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so hard once those sort of rumors are out there to then prove that something was true or not, you know? It's really kind of frustrating. I think those rumors come from two different places. Like one of the places is sort of gay people and, you know, LGBT people in general sort of trying Mm. to project that sort of wish because they want to have that visibility. So they want to sort of think, oh, maybe they were gay. And that Mm. gives gives us some sort of a recognition that we have a place in film history. So I think I'm not that upset with those kind of rumors what i'm upset about is those kind of people who just sort of make up those stories because they want to you know make money off them and they think oh if i make this salacious gossip happen then so that's i think two very different points of view and i think for someone like watching a an old film and thinking oh this is gay and like looking for a gay sort of narrative within a film or even within an actor i don't really see anything wrong with that but to sort of write that I don't know, Catherine Hepburn had the gay or lesbian orgy at her house. It's just... Exactly. It's like, well, were you there? How do you know? I mean, she did. I hope she had fun, but, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's what bothers me as well, though, because, like, a lot of these books that come out that are unsourced, you know, they don't have end notes or anything. You don't know where they got this information. They're like, so-and-so friend told me this. Or yeah. the brother of that guy that I talked to at the restaurant yesterday. Or a gave source. Me a they just say story. a source. The source tells said, me. or as Donald Trump said, everybody says. Many it's people like, have said, and it's like, well, who said? You know, your and it really, source it, is your toilet. Yeah, <laughs> your source is your butt. I know. <laughs> this is really, yeah, you know, it really like it annoys me because then those like salacious Hollywood Babylon type stories are the ones that get so blown Mm. up you know everyone writes about them and they're like oh this okay so one more example is that book damn you scarlett o'hara i know i was just going to mention it can we just i (laughs) took one look at it and dropped it in the trash bin because it was so like it wasn't even properly researched i just can't and for these people to say like 
Oh, as Vivian Lee was like this bisexual, adulterous, whore, slut lady, and Lawrence Levy, you know, they're all sleeping with everybody. And it's like, you know what? They probably did sleep with But a isn't lot it of interesting people. that, like, people who are bisexual or, like, gay are, like, automatically become whores or, like, immoral? Exactly. This, that's like, the culture we live in. Like, no yes. one's going to write about, like, people, I don't know, like, uh, Kirk Douglas having, like, lots of lovers or the rumor about him raping natalie wood was that him yeah it was him yeah and like no one that's not a big deal because he's a straight white man but you know being gay is like it's immoral in itself still there's this sort of notion that if you write about that it's gonna it's gonna create big news it's like who gives a shit okay vivian had sex with a woman i don't personally care yeah exactly (laughs) no and i mean for me okay like personal note I think sexual sexuality is a spectrum and I personally fall more in the middle of the spectrum. So I would consider myself more bisexual than anything, but I've literally only slept with two people and like, there's not, oh you my know, God. you couldn't make up these rumors about me. I'm not like a slut, Kendra you know, comes but there's nothing out. wrong with this. <laughs> I am. <laughs> this is your official coming out. Your Ellen moment. No. My Ellen moment, like everybody already knows this, but yeah, um, yeah, but no, it's just like it's really frustrating. And but I feel like um, women get more of a pass in, and yeah. like oh, you know, they're they're dabbling with things or oh, yeah, or whatever. You know, it's like okay. Also, but, um, everyone thinks that like two women together is like hot, like guy, like straight guys. Yeah. Are like, oh yeah, that's hot. So like, if a straight guy thinks that's hot, then it's fine. But obviously two guys together is not a hot idea for most straight men although you know i've met some that <laughs> that do well i hot, think but... <laughs> i think two men are that's hot to me so that's why we're friends <laughs> that's why kidding. we're friends that's <laughs> that's why we're spirit animals yeah but i just uh, i don't know i think in terms of old hollywood people i feel like there's a lot of rumors that go around it's very difficult to get to the bottom of those especially when they're really prominent everyone's like oh vivian lee's a big oh my slut, god big fat bisexual i just remember this shit. i just what? remember this story when i like ages ago like i was in this gay bar in london and this guy was like talking to me and he was like what do you do and i was like yeah i'm sort of into film i write about film and he was like oh did you know that like when elizabeth taylor and rock hudson james dean were making giant together they're like Rock Hudson was fucking James Dean at the same time he was fucking Elizabeth Taylor. I was like, um, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> but if it did, then good for them because that's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your source, Mister? Who's your source? <laughs> Bring the receipts. <laughs> I want to see I mean, the receipts. That is a very like tantalizing idea, the three of them. But I just I don't think it happened. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it did. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but we also wanted to talk about, like, gay icons in old Hollywood, which we, which we, like, briefly touched on in the last episode when we were talking about Feud. But I know you wanted yeah. to talk about, like, Marlena Dietrich and people, so go forth. Well, I just wanted to say a few words about sort of what a gay icon is, because there's a lot of confusion about it, especially nowadays, because we are living in a sort of a different time now, a more accepting time and being gay has become more socially acceptable. So 
it's sort of the dynamic of being a gay icon is changing and there's a lot of especially younger people online always commenting like oh how can she be a gay icon if she's not gay and it's like um that's not the, the like that's not the <laughs> point <laughs> and i think it's like interesting because obviously as we mentioned already in the old days there were no gay people that were like sort of visible in in the culture in the media and films so yeah. gay, gay people really had to find substitute person sort of personalities on screen that they could identify with and so that generally was a strong sort of female character and sort of a flamboyant female character um so those are gay icons the classic gay icons like judy garland or marlon dietrich or marilyn monroe or um liza or barbara and like it's funny because they very often go by just their first name you know liza or yeah. barbara <laughs> so it's really interesting and like nowadays people are like oh but if you're not gay you can't be a gay icon so that's ridiculous just putting it out oh. there <laughs> well what so I, I think i asked you this the last time we recorded but what is it about certain people that attracts gay i think because it's mostly like a gay men thing isn't it like gay men love these certain women um, yeah it's, it's, it's it also a mixture a les- of like there are lesbian icons too i think but it is sort of definitely more prominently sort of gay men have yeah well uh, what is it about people like Marlene Dietrich and Judy Garland and Cher and Barbara Streisand that appeals so much to I think there are a lot of uh, elements but I think I think especially with Marlene Dietrich it's that sort of gender bending and she was really mm-hmm. so playful with it and that appealed to well, just about anyone who watched her because she could be very masculine at the same time, very feminine, and she could sort of kiss a woman and in the same scene, she sort of flirt with Gary Cooper. I'm thinking of Morocco, mm. like the really iconic film that she did. So she was so like outside the box with her personality, with her behavior, with her costumes, with her look. And that really appeals to, to gay people because, you know, that's what we want to see more of, like less of the sort of, heteronormative standards and more of a kind of interesting queer ideas and certainly Dietrich and Garbo as well I mean you remember Queen Christina where she plays this raging lesbian queen it's an (laughs) awful film I'm sorry it is but like she (laughs) is so she's so fiercely gay in it that like (laughs) if you watch it you just you feel empowered by it because she like gives no whatsoever about like being so gay about you know her character and there's this scene where one of her like courtiers said to her like oh but you can't die an old maid and she says well I'm gonna die an old bachelor (laughs) (laughs) yes get it girl yeah but also it's Um, it's but what about people like like share and people who aren't obviously like uh like gender bending kind of people but just like judy garland for example what is it about judy well, that, garland that... i think that's another aspect that judy garland also marilyn monroe i think is the vulnerability and the sort of like being somehow victimized by society in the same mm-hmm. way that gay people fe- felt victimized and yet sort of surviving it and being fabulous despite being sort of kicked and pushed around and I think that's a Mm -hmm. big part of it so and I remember again I mean it's so great having that experience you know personal experience because I remember 
when I was a child and I had a really hard time at school and I was bullied and it was horrible and I would come home and sort of watch a documentary about Marilyn and there was this Aww. it was called um, Marilyn Monroe the last interview so she did this last interview just a few days before she died and uh-huh. she would talk about like how the studios treated her and like sh- how basically she was bullied by the studios and bullied by the system and how she sort of and just listening to that just really gave me so much strength and I remember I watched it maybe like a hundred times or more so it really is sort of identifying with their struggles as mm-hmm. much on the screen as much in the movies as as in their personal lives and also if you think about them so many of them didn't have like a stable relationship or like a traditional home like they divorced many mm-hmm. times they had many sort of trials and tribulations and and they didn't sort of have a traditional marriage that would sort of protect them from society so they were largely on their yeah. own or they were sort of unhappy and you know i think that that's part of it too it's really interesting yeah i think someone should write a book about it um <laughs> oh my gosh i think i know just the person and his name is anthony oh okay <laughs> get her jade <laughs> But also I wanted to say that um, aside from those sort of fabulous female gay icons, there are also male gay icons, which we already talked about. So Rock Hudson, James Dean certainly is a mm. huge gay icon. And and those are the, the men who were closeted. In most cases, they were closeted homosexuals, but maybe at the time it wasn't wildly known. But mm-hmm. just the sort of personality they projected on screen I don't know. Sort of... Like, is it more of like a like a softer personality compared to like like in the nineteen thirties and forties? You had these tough guys like Clark yeah. Gable and Humphrey Bogart and people like that, and then you had the Montgomery Cliffs and the James Deans who came along, and they were more definitely more vulnerable and more maybe more in tune with their feelings and yeah. more able to like emote. Their characters could emote instead of just being like this he man, you know. Definitely, I think that's that's it. And I don't know. I mean, you obviously have people like William Holden, who's like this beefcake, and he, you know, yeah. I'm sure lots of and lots how of, lots of gay guys like fancied him. Not talking about myself. Well, yes, I am. I'm not talking about <laughs> me, but yes, I'm talking about me. <laughs> but I don't know. It's just I love James Dean, and I know that there are many people out there who still love him very much. Like our friend Jeremy, I know he he's a mm. huge fan of James Dean. Yeah. There's something about him, and and he a bit like Dietrich. Like it's not that one dimensional because it's not he wasn't. Well, it's never been documented that he was exclusively gay. He was certainly bisexual, but you uh-huh. know, it was, again, it's about sort of the gender bending and the the sexuality being sort of, you know, you can't really pigeonhole them and. That's really fascinating. Well, Marlon Brando apparently would have fucked a radiator. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't know I don't I I've, I've never really like gotten James Dean like I don't think he's that good looking or anything. But I really love Montgomery Clift. He's like he's I just kind Montgomery of this Clift like too. ideal image. Like I, he's so he's just beautiful and. And just, it's really yeah. sad what happened to him as well. I think I like sad people really is more what I'm saying. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, there's something about sad stories and like human suffering. I don't know. It makes us feel better about ourselves in some way. I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe so I just, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's clinical depressions. 
But you, I mean, you don't want to just see someone who like goes through life and everything is great and everything's handed That's to them. True. They have a great marriage and like great career and then they retire and just everything is great. I mean, I still love you, Meryl Streep, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like one of those things where it's kind of like mm, vanilla people are really boring. Like Doris Day and people who have these like very like happy-go-lucky images. I'm just like, next, please. Like, give me someone who had struggles. <laughs> interesting. It's interesting you mentioned Doris they were because crazy, you know. Doris is actually considered a, a lesbian icon, especially her film *Calamity <laughs> Jane*. Yeah, I think I knew about that. Yeah, which I've and never also, seen that film, but Joan Crawford and Mercedes McCambridge in um, *Johnny Guitar*. You've seen that film, right? I've also never seen that. So. Oh my god, you have to see it. It's hilarious. It's like, it's Joan in this like really tight silk sort of black cowboy shirt with her gun. And it's just like, it's amazing. Again, it's, I don't know, it's so fascinating. Those films are so like gay, but they're like, it's really hard to say why, but there's just something, this this real quality of like campness and like really delightful gayness about them i think it is the campness yeah sometimes i i can't like sometimes i can't deal with too much camp like i know we've talked about this before with a film like the roman spring and mrs stone which i know you love and i know so many people love it but for me it's just a bit too camp okay so can i just say the other day i was walking down the street and actually i don't know why i had this epiphany about the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. I was like, this is okay. a quintessential like gay film because Mrs. Stone is a gay man. Like that character okay. is definitely a gay man who's like aging. Like she Well, lost... she's Tennessee Williams, isn't she? She definitely is Tennessee Williams. And I just The autobiography. It's... Yeah. <laughs> it it's actually that film is a sort of unappreciated masterpiece i think it should really be discovered like rediscovered and have a a huge renaissance because i think it's so good um i don't actually i mean it is campy but at the same time it's very authentic i think yeah i think it's very authentic it's this idea of aging on your own i think it's something that a Uh lot of gay men especially in the past now it's different because obviously there's a lot more sort of chances to to start a family to adopt children and or to have your own children if you're gay and there's but also those... like marriage equality exactly but in okay. the old days like be, being gay and like aging on your own and not having family instead of seeing everyone around you die and then sort of being at the mercy of you know whatever it's i think that film really captures that and obviously they could make a film about a gay man in those days in the 60s mm. but i think this comes as close as possible to capturing that and i think it's it's beautifully made and obviously vivian's fabulous in it and well i'm not gonna say warren Beatty is fabulous in it because he's not he's but... not but he looks good he looks he good does. and that's what he was there to do so yeah he definitely he provides his the, role yeah. the campness because he's like italian he, is the, ca- he like... is the camp but also vivian lee's wigs those are the camp as well the campness to me They're, but they look what is like happening they look like, I mean, if you go down to Soho, you see a lot of those guys in their 60s who, like, have hair like hers. <laughs> <laughs> she literally is a gay man in this film. Amazing! Well, I also consider myself a gay man inside, an 80-year-old gay man, so I'm gonna get a wig as well. Immediately <laughs> <laughs> wig and wear it around. I don't keep my diamonds in the soap. <laughs> 
And when the time comes when nobody desires me for myself, I'd rather not be desired desire at all. At all. <laughs> Why, Meg? <laughs> oh my Why god. Don't you come- okay, so Meg is definitely the lesbian character in that film. She is a lesbian. Yeah, she she's is. A, she's in love with Vivian, and I mean, who can blame yeah. her? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, who isn't? But I, I'm a lesbian yeah. for Vivian. <laughs> so am I. Um, so. <laughs> Why don't you come back to New York, Karen, before you burn all your bridges? I don't want to. This is my home. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. We should do a whole Too episode good. on that. <laughs> we should. And you know who's gonna we should invite on is Lucy Bolton. Oh Lucy, we love you. We love you, Lucy. Lucy is okay, a gay icon. Like Lucy, you are a gay icon. Um I feel like we've run out of time yeah sorry people are gonna be like okay let's are you still there are you still awake (laughs) echo is anyone out there or did you turn off like an hour ago (laughs) but i feel like we could go on talking about this all night because it's so interesting it is yeah maybe that maybe that book is something we should definitely think about (laughs) you should think you should totally do it i'm serious that would be really interesting any publishers out there interested, please call me. Yes. Call Anthony. He's on the Facebook and the Twitter. And the Hotel and Excelsior. The Instagram. Hotel Excelsior. Okay, right. <laughs> I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, you can listen to this on our website, cinescapism.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or on any of the other previous episodes. You can send us an email we're also on Twitter at Cinescapism um, and on Facebook at Cinescapism Podcast. So please check us out. Thank you so much for listening. Anthony, it's been a pleasure as always, my dear. Same with you, darling. Now, now sashay, sashay away. away. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>